Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I'm recording this from a, a different location. I'm not in the garage. I imagine you can hear a little difference in the sound quality. I'm in a hotel room in New York City, in Manhattan. And I'm actually, I'm in a neighborhood that uh, that I'm not usually in. I'm, I, they put me up in Midtown. As some of you know, I will be, um, I'll be working on the Joker movie. I start tomorrow. And uh, I'm not nervous yet. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I, I know many of you know this. I know some of you still don't think I've addressed the, uh, the, the reality of it properly, uh, given my criticism of superhero movies. But I will stand by my not only my defense of taking this opportunity to do a scene with Robert De Niro and Joaquin Phoenix, but also in defense of this particular movie. It's not what you think. And that's the truth. I went out to a set. Can't tell you where it is, but it, uh, it was it was outside the city. Uh, to, that's where the that's where they were set up for that day. And I fitted I got fitted for my outfit. And um I, I've been going over my lines and I'm I'm ready. I'm ready in my mind. I don't know what it'll be like to be standing next to Robert De Niro doing a scene. Walking, actually. We're going to be walking. I think I can tell you that. We're going to be walking and doing a scene. I'm going to be walking and talking to Robert De Niro and then standing still and talking to both of them. That's I can tell you that much. I believe I'm free and clear to say that. I don't think I've let on anything, really. But uh, I imagine tomorrow when I get there, I'll be like, holy shit. But who knows? I don't know. Did I mention who's on the show? Eric Idle is here from Monty Python. There's been a Monty Python week. So, New York. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've been coming here. You know, I, I lived here. I had a big chunk of my life here. And I come here and I, I always have odd feelings, you know. I, do, I don't, this is a perfect time of year. Fall on the East Coast when it gets a little crisp in the air and the, the, the sky is clear and uh, the leaves are starting to turn. Some of them have turned. You're, you're starting to just wear the, that one layer or two layers. It's, it just, it, it does something to my brain. Gets me into a space, into a, it's not a, a high feeling, and I, I don't know really, you know, what to call it, but it's, it's sort of thoughtful. There's, uh, there, you know, uh, it's a, a time of reflection. 
I lately, like, I don't really do what I used to do when I come here, and I don't know how to really stay here more than three days. I left for a reason, and I've talked about that before. You know, it gets to be a little overwhelming, uh, New York, and you, you get to a point where you just got to get out. But so much of my uh, my my brain is interfaced with this city. I know how to be in New York, but I, I think I finally sort of figured out why I don't really like staying here more than a few days when I used to just love it here. And the truth is, it's like nostalgic can be sort of malignant. I'm not that nostalgic a person. I don't really think about the past as a better time or think that things were necessarily better in the past or I don't I don't have I don't re- revise things from my past or or sort of ruminate on them in a way that that makes me feel like my present is no good. I mean generally I I, I tend to forget most of of what I went through, if anything. And, and my memories of things, they never tend towards like being better than they what they were. They always go the other way, really. But I think that in general, you know, our own personal histories and whatever we've come through and whatever we've gone through sort of define us. And I looked up the word nostalgia. The definition is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. Something done or presented in order to evoke feelings of nostalgia. But then if you go to the origin of nostalgia, it's Greek. It's nostos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. I'm not some sort of uh, linguistic person. Nostos, which is return home, and algos, which is pain. And that sort of evolved into homesickness. And then nostalgia evolved into acute homesickness. And... I don't know if they got it right, because I think really what's most cathartic to me about the origin is that return home pain. I think that's more why we don't go back places. Like me, I, I understand how it evolved into like when you're not home, that there's a pain for not being home. But I just think if we break it down to nostos and algos is return home, there is pain. You return home and then the pain will come back. So even in the natural evolution of the word to where it becomes homesickness in that idea of nostalgia is this essence of the trauma of the past. Like I go around this town and I'm like, why does it feel a little haunted? Whatever my life was here, it was a fucking struggle. All of it. I went through a marriage here. I went through my stand up early stand up career here. I went through drugs here. I went through complete chaotic you know, existential earthquakes of self here. I, you know, I, you know, part of it defined me, but I just started to realize that this sort of overwhelming kind of energy that makes New York amazing, you know, always had this tinge to it because I was always happy to be here. But what was that tinge? What was that isolating feeling? What was that, that kind of darkness around the edges outside of it just being New York was that, holy shit, I was a chaotic fucking mess when I was here, just, you know, at all different points in the decade or so that I was here. And I realized like, oh, that's it. I mean, I'm not nostalgic for any of that. I mean, as cool as it is to come back and kind of walk past the old haunts and everything, that's what they are. They're old haunts for a reason because they haunted you and they still haunt you. And it's like, if you really put yourself back in that place from your past, it's like, I would never want to fucking be there again. So it's not getting me depressed because obviously you move through it to a point where you're like, well, I, 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 I did okay. You know, even given all of that bullshit, you know, I made it out and I'm alive and things are going okay. But that doesn't mean 
that performing for four people or sweating alone in my apartment or or wondering you know what the fuck was going to happen with my life getting fucked up all the time full identity crisis of you know what what am i doing with my life and that stuff it's all here sweaty marin wanders these streets eternally and it all comes down to like here's new york but here are those two blocks man here are those four blocks here are those two or three clubs this was your life for years and you were sweaty and angry and freaked out and terrified and fucking unsure of everything and just barely hanging on that guy you know if i go back to those two blocks or i go back to that area where those three clubs are i can still feel and see that part of me that that me who i was just wandering around sweaty and angry and lost and fucking you know hanging hopes on nothing granted i got through it but when i get in it it's sort of like oh okay that's the darkness so maybe my realizing this Maybe I should just, you know what I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go downtown and I'm going to find Sweaty Mark. I'll probably have to wait until it's like two in the morning. Maybe go over to uh, Veselka, sit down with Sweaty Mark and, and just go like, dude, you know, you can, you can leave. You, you know, you don't have to, you know, it worked out. It worked out, Sweaty Mark. So let's, uh, let's get together on this and frame it the right way so you're not nagging at me when i come back here yeah that was that experience i'm glad i put that together return home pain right so eric idol this was a great a great conversation it was it was fun having the honor actually to talk to jean cleese and eric idol was it was an amazing experience and and when i talked to eric and I didn't talk too much about John about this specifically, but I remember, man, I remember, do you remember? I mean, I'm 55 now. And I remember when Monty Python was on PBS. That was where you had to watch it. And I remember when I first heard about it and turning that channel over to PBS, which was generally at, at that point, I guess it was in the seventies and I was young. It was kind of flat it was not that engaging i didn't watch sesame street i didn't watch mcneil Lair. i didn't or uh you know I, there were news programs on there but i don't know that i really understood what public broadcasting was but it was on there but i remember late at night you would tune in and those credits the terry gilliam credits and it was just like it was fucking mind-blowing it's like what am i watching what the fuck is happening and I was thinking about this alongside of thinking about nostalgia and thinking about when I was younger and thinking about, you know, getting into that space and thinking about sitting in front of that TV set late at night downstairs in the house I grew up in, you know, alone in the dark in front of that TV set and that Monty Python came on and you were like, what is this? There is nothing like this on any planet except here and now. What is going on? And then it would just unfold. The show would unfold. And you're like, what am I watching? What's happening to my brain? It was fucking mind-blowing. And I, and I just really kind of locked into that today when I was thinking about talking to you guys about this. That like there was nothing like it. And to this day, there remains it remains that there's nothing like it, but watching that when it was happening at the time it was happening, uh, it, you know, having that weird secret feeling of like, does anybody else know about this? This is insane. 
What am I watching? That was the beauty of it. And then just taking it in and trying to wrap your brain around it was spectacular. It was it was an incredible experience. And now I get to talk to one of the guys, another one of the guys. Uh, Eric Idle uh, has a book out. It's his memoir, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, is now available wherever you get books. And this was a conversation that happened a few weeks ago in the garage and uh, had a lovely time. These guys are, they're, they're great. I'd like, I'd like to talk to Palin. I, I, maybe that can happen. I don't know. But, uh, but this is me and Eric Idle back in the garage. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. I just, I got your book and I picked, and someone sent me the, uh, the oral history of David Bowie. And I, I noticed you weren't in there. You're like one of, uh, uh, th- did they ask you to do that? Somebody wrote to me and said, I'm so sorry I didn't talk to you. Oh, that, uh, <laughs> but I don't think they knew we were friends. It wasn't a very broadcast. Right. It was just happened. We happened to be friends for, for quite a long time, actually. When actually, did you meet 80s him? And, um, I what? met him through Bobcat Goldthwait here in the in the I think eighties. You met him through Bobcat? Yes, he was I, good friends, but he loved comedians. I did. I had no idea that Bobcat knew him, and I've talked to uh, Bobcat. I, he's directed my show. I've been. He's been on this show a million times, and how did I not know he didn't know Bowie? Um, well, I, I think he did introduced us, and then. Then we met in um, on holiday yeah. in St. Bart's with by John John by Lorne Michaels yeah and we got on really well and then we went and stayed with him several times in it, in in Switzerland oh really yeah we got really good friends and we went on a couple of cruises with him with Bowie yeah. See, it always uh, surprises me as a fan of people that uh, they just have normal lives. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Who yeah. would have figured? <laughs> so, you're, so you're down in St. Bart's with Lorne Michaels, David Bowie. Yeah. Just say, like... I, but then his kid was there, my kid was there. You I, know, I just say, interviewed him. Duncan? Yeah, Duncan. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's a picture of him in the book, Yeah, too. I saw that. Uh, um, I guess we're on St. No, I don't know where we are on holiday there. Is it an odd thing, though? It's mystique, perhaps. That uh, that when you reach a certain level of celebrity that uh, you sort of have to hang out with uh, the other ones? I think it becomes neutralized. Yeah. I don't think... They aren't, they aren't celebrities. They're right. just people you meet who happen to be in show business. In the same business you yeah. are. Yeah, that makes or, sense. Or not even the same business. They're doing music. You know, I'm not in that business. But you are in that business. Well, peripherally. But, I mean, it seems like that was the... It, it almost seems like that was the thing you were most passionate about early on. 
early on when I first came to America, most of my life here was rock and roll. So I was up at night only. Yeah. I that was with Harrison and George and people. When, when was that? What year are you talking about? Oh, I suppose we're talking 75. We first came here in 73. With the troop, with the guys? At, stayed at the Riot House, yes. Yeah, over on the Hyatt. It's now the Hyatt. Yeah, yes. next to the comedy store. Well, they called it the Riot yeah, House. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. In 73? Yeah. Oh, that exactly. must have been crazy. Well, we came out. It was crazy. All the guys? Like, all except John, who missed a good time always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just his nature? <laughs> well, he was older. <laughs> you know, I mean, he literally How much is. Older? Um, well, he's born in 1939. Yeah. So he will be what? Next year, he will be... 80 yeah that's Is like that possible my, yes yeah next year yeah my dad's so 80 this year 79 this year um and i'm only 75 yeah oh so he's pale in two we're the youngest too how was he at uh cambridge when you were there if he was five years older because after the war all of the servicemen got a preference to go into cambridge in oxford uh-huh so he got had to wait his generation had to wait a couple of years and he might have been liable for national service, but what he did is he went back to his old prep school and taught Latin for two years. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think he told me that. It's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's his happiest time. Yeah. So it's even weirder. <laughs> He's really a teacher, John. I mean, in, in, yeah. in, in many good ways. So 73, you're here. It's all rock and roll? 73, That was the here. first it's trip a, over? It's the summer of rock and roll. We came out of touring Canada. Uh-huh. As a group. As the group, and that was a rock and roll reaction. It was at the end of, uh, but that was the end of the TV show around 73, no? The TV show was, oh, we know, we were deciding whether to do a fourth series. Uh-huh. And on the tour, John announced he was not going to do that. <laughs> and so he left us at Vancouver, which was the last days. Yeah. And we were taken by Neil Bogard, the record company, Buddha Records. So they took us down to LA yeah. to do promo because we were only on records yeah. here. Oh, and people only knew us as a recording. They thought we were like... What was that called? Far Sign Theatre. They oh, right, thought like the, we just did comedy rate records. Well, there were two of them, right? Two records. I don't know what they released here. Yeah, there, but they they were they were on Buddha, and then yeah. we had to do. We did the Tonight Show. We did you know various weird promotional things. And it was and that's interesting. So the so the TV show didn't start airing here until when? I would say seven. It was started in Dallas. Um, what and, a strange beginning, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, on the da- PBS there. Dallas PBS, yeah. Ron DeVillier picked it up. It was very cheap from the BBC, and he noticed an immediate spike on Sunday nights. Yeah. And he persuaded other stations, including New York, right. to run it, other PBS stations. I grew up in New Mexico, and I remember that was where you found it. It was this strange thing to find where, you know, word got out, and you're like, that's on PBS? What is it? And it'd be on late at night, and you'd be sitting there, you're a kid, and you're like, what am, what am I watching? I was I- like 13. And for about 25, 30 years, that was it. And that was so great for us because it ran and nobody cared. Yeah. And it was on. People could find it. Right. In every city. Yeah. All over America. It didn't hit ratings or anything because it's on PBS. Mm Mm-hmm. And they didn't cut it, yeah. and they didn't have commercial breaks. Right. So it was just a perfect home. We wouldn't have been there but for that. And it's interesting because that cultivated a, a true cult audience i mean that you know people became very dedicated to it it was a unique find you know who would who would watch pbs and you had this whole generation of people that were discovering something that almost no one knew about that's was the experience of python yeah sort of discovered it like a cult yeah and it was a you know cult viewing and oh did we know this and you know when we ever did a tour 
they would come out and they'd find other fans at right. the concert with them. Right, and right. That, that was like news to them. There Converts. Other, yeah. Yeah. The, other people. Oh, I see. I see. So they'd go to the show and they're like, oh, you like them too. Right. Other people. Yeah. You know, my gosh, I thought it was just my little secret. <laughs> so I, who did I talk to? It was Roger Waters, I think, who I talked to of a generation of people that were born, you know, during World War II and, and sort of the effect that has, because that's one big difference between Americans and Europeans is that y Europeans were, they, they got the shit bombed out of them and it was a real thing. And that's something we have no real uh, awareness of here. No. And, and you remember it? How old were you? I remember the sound of the sirens. I was, I was about two and a half when the war ended in 45. Oh, the young. Um, I was young, but yeah, when, but terror it communicates itself very quickly. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So it was an experience, and then after the post-war, it was very bleak because we had rationing till I was ten or eleven. Because it was rubble forever. It was rubble everywhere. And your father didn't get, die in the war. My father died hitchhiking home for Christmas from the RAF, and he made it through the war. Made it through the war from 1941 in the back, you know, in the Lancaster bomber. Wow! But he was in transport command mostly. But yeah. um, and then was sort of killed in a road accident on the way home for Christmas. Oh my God! I know. It's <laughs> but but you you don't remember that. No, I don't remember that. But you remember uh, his absence. I think so. Yes, I mean they were always absent because they were in the war. Right. So they were away. You don't remember. But, I mean, I have pictures and his diaries and little things. It's yeah. very sweet. Afterwards, you put these things together, you know. And do you have siblings? Uh, no. You were only child? Only child, yes. Wow. So when, when after your father passed, I mean, did you just grow up with your mother? Um, my mother went into sort of, kind of, sort of depression. And it was, uh, so I grew up with my, what I call my grand and my pop, who I think were her uncle and aunt. Yeah. And I was in Manchester, and they were very loving and so very the, nice to me. So the depression lasted a lifetime? No. Well, yeah, on and off it did, actually. I think she was bipolar. But um, eventually then she got a job as a nurse in uh, Wallasey, which is the other side of the Mersey from Liverpool. And I went to school there with her for the first time at five. Uh-huh. And then you didn't stay there, though? Well, we were there two years, and then she got an offer from the... Uh, REF Benevolent Fund yeah. to put me into this uh, boarding school, which paid for our, the entire education. Oh, th so they did that. That's how you got into uh, Oxford as well, or Cambridge as because well. Because of that, really, indirectly, 12 years later. But all the boys I was at school with had no fathers. But but uh, so, but they some of them remembered them passing or like yeah, I, mean, so I you don't captured, think so. We'd have in, been kids. Yeah, in the in the book, you sort of uh, talk about how you they, they were all crying and you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was early on. You're, yeah. you're you know seven. It's a bit of a shock to be oh, to be taken yeah, so away. Suddenly, from, you're in the middle of a this sort of awful place. You yeah, know? <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was awful. The senior school was awful. We were in a dormitory in the senior school, which was 100 yards long. Right. With a bed every three feet. You oh, know. my God. Like yeah, no, it, not great. No. <laughs> not much privacy, too. No privacy at all. Uh, and a lot of bullying and quite a lot of beating. Oh, you could be beaten by the prefects. Oh, oh really? Yeah. So, so that, was, uh, that was okay then? Endemic. And yeah. then, then the masters could beat you with canes. Really? It was their privilege, yes. Did, did that happen to you a lot? A lot. Why, because you were a smartass? Well, you could put it that way. I mean, I was once beaten for silent insolence. <laughs> what <laughs> chance does that give you? <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, but you looked. <laughs> <laughs> we sensed what you were thinking. Yes. 
And when did you like with the British? There's a, the, the entire comedic sensibility is different, I believe, than than here in the states. And there's a whole history of comedy that I learn about in bits and pieces. So when you were younger, at that age, what were your first experiences with with the the idea of being funny, or what was entertaining to you? Well, we didn't have much entertainment. What we got into most of all was rock and roll. So right. when our Elvis came and saved our lives, yeah. so we had little transistor radios. We actually built crystal sets first to listen to the music we, on oh, the radio. And so you were you're, you're clever kids. Well, we yeah. were smart. Yeah, we figured out. You had all this time. Yeah, you got fourteen weeks <laughs> yeah. of school. Right. I mean, it's just endless. It doesn't. And then other people grew up and had teenage lives. You know, they're right. going out and dating and dancing. Yeah. But we're stuck in this place. So we listened a lot to music. Rock yeah. and roll was very, very important. It's it was life saving. Something really was happening. Saving. Totally, Elvis totally saved our lives. Really? Do you remember the first time you heard it? But you could you, absolutely. I was actually I was in a, I was in a cat. It was a Heartbreak Hotel. And uh, it was 57, I think, and I was at this sort of holiday camp yeah. called Butlins, where yeah. you went for two weeks, and you know, yeah. it was and, quite fun. But and, um, all the girls, and they were dancing and jitterbugging to that. To Elvis? Yeah, Elvis. Broke it open. Unleashed the uh, primal desire Absolutely. of all the children. He seemed to be on our side. He seemed to be talking to us. And did were you playing music at that time? I was in a skiffle group, um, so a folk group. And yeah. so I started off by playing harmonica. Can he still play? Chuck Berry, you know, Brownie McGee, and you know, Sonny Terry, Sonny Brownie, Terry Brownie McGee. Terry, Brownie McGee. I pick yeah. a bale of cotton. I do yeah. all those things. And then we did sort of you know, black protest songs because I think we associated somehow <laughs> being all white in Wolverhampton at about 3,000 miles from the Deep South, right? Maybe 5,000 miles. Uh, we somehow associated with that, those protests. The, 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 uh, the idea of repression yeah. and, and oppression and, and, and not being free to do what you want to do. Totally. So it was between that and uh, British war films where they were sort of escaping from Colditz. <laughs> So we, our school we called Colditz. It was like yeah. the Colditz, right? And you had to break out always, climbing over the walls. So before, but before Elvis was there, there was a, a folk thing happening. I mean, do you remember? Because it seemed like the, that you grew up in this prime era of uh, upheaval. Yes, social upheaval. So like folk was was popular, and that was was that. Did you see yourself like I'm going to do this? No, 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 no. <laughs> it was just it was fun playing right. guitar. We had a guitarist, a banjo player, and I was the harmonica player. And then eventually, I got at fourteen. I got myself a guitar, yeah, and started to try and learn, you know, the basic chords and play songs and things and that. Yeah, and what was the uh, at that time the comedic influences? Like, what were you listening to outside of Elvis? Was it, I mean, you listening to the radio? There must have been no, no. Uh, well, there were great shows on the radio, but they were always on when we were doing what prep. Which was like in the evening, right. just for change. Right. We do a two hours of prep, which right. means you're going to the school, you know, and your classroom, and then yeah. do hours of homework. Yeah, compulsory uh, watched homework. Yeah, but you talk a little in the book about you know being somewhat that some that you were a, a legacy of uh, of performers uh, somewhere in your genealogy. There were circus performers or brought. Oh, well, that's true though. That's my great great grandfather was a circus uh, ringmaster. In the 1880s, 1890s. And did you like, did you go to the circus? I was taken to the circus at five in Bellevue, Manchester by my pop who was looking yeah. after me. And the clowns treated us like royalty. It was unbelievable because his name was Bertrand. Yeah. And this guy was called Bertrand in the 1880s. Your great-grandfather. Great, and he great. was famous. Yeah. A famous ringmaster. 
And the clowns, yeah. And the clowns are very respectful. And, you know, you're terrified of clowns when you're little. But they were, <laughs> I went backstage. I thought, that's kind of cool, were you know. You, circus you, royalty. <laughs> <laughs> were you terrified of clowns? Yeah, they're kind of scary. Yeah. They're, they're anarchic, you know, especially in real live performances. Anarchic. Very much so. I guess I never thought about it that way, but that's true. They, they have this sort of like the freedom to do that. Uh, absolutely. And they mess around with the other performers and they pretend to throw buckets of water over the audience. And That's true, yeah. They're very... They're more fun, actually, in real life like that, in bunches, I think. Yeah, groups of clowns yes, are more fun. An isolated clown could be sad. Very sad. It becomes <laughs> a bobcat with some kind of strange agenda to kill you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but it, like, did you? I, I guess I never really processed that. And you call it like Monty Python's Flying Circus. Where'd that come from? I mean, it, it, was, it was a very strange amalgamation. But only afterwards did I realize I was also in a circus. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that struck me as being really strange. I, and then I looked into my great-grandfather great grandfather, and found he was also a comedian when he started. Before they, he became a ringmaster, he was a comedian. Like uh, doing, like, the, well, the equivalent of pre-vaudeville, I guess. We have uh, burlesque houses. I would say musical vaudeville. Mm -hmm. He was in Folkestone in yeah. one of the uh, censuses. These him and another guy are staying there, and they're listed as comedians. Really? I wonder if they were a team. I think they were. Yeah. No, no, they weren't. They were, so, they were, but I don't know what they did. Yeah. That was no. Yeah. No. Uh, no uh, uh, historical record of that. No videotape. No audio tape. No uh, transcripts. It's, it's 1825. I know. I know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> this very ancient cracked record where they're doing yeah. mainly visual comedy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, what a pity you can't see that <laughs> but did you like like i have to assume that that living that kind of life in that sort of there it sounds dark it sounds like there was a, a darkness to it that it must have been a relief to laugh i would imagine laughter was very good because it, it was our rebellion and you laughed at the, the authority and you subverted authority. We learned to climb over the walls and go to the off-license and buy beer and find mixed-made girls and sure. meet girls and yeah. all the good, decent things. Cheese, the things you learn when you're yeah. in confinement. Well, yes, because it <laughs> yes. is sort of halfway between being in the military yeah. and being in prison. Was that the agenda of the school to get you into the military? I don't think so. I think I think they were kindly disposed. I mean, there were all these sort of semi-orphans that the the, the RAF were paying for, right? And because they're, they're sort of widows, so they it was very hard for single women to have a job and to bring up a, a you know kid from seven to eighteen. Yeah, it's very oh, very sure. hard. Yeah. So um, I think they were being philanthropic. Yeah, and. and you know, doing and we got a decent education. I mean, I I discovered, you know, I got on to to Cambridge. Yeah. What were you what were your interests when you were at the uh at the uh boarding school? I mean like cuz it it seems like y y you know when you look at Python and you look at the the work you did even in music and stuff that the, there is a historical tradition to it that you know certainly the movies at Python the stuff you guys dealt with was pretty deep stuff, lofty stuff. Well, I was had two things. I had two toys. One of which was my grand gave me a typewriter. Yeah. So I started to write stories. Yeah. And that was an escape. Yeah. And the other thing was my guitar, which was a fantastic mode of escape. And I suppose the third thing I would say is I learned to read. Yeah. And that that's, that's an enormous escape if you're in a huge crowded community of yeah. boys and things, you know. 
and you know we played football and yeah. messed around and played cricket and you know it, was, yeah. there were, it wasn't all bleak right I, I mean i think the overall arc of it was bleak because there's no emotional support right 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 yeah you or know, no uh, sort very, of like uh, uh uh not i guess emotional guidance or someone to look up to i mean when you don't have a father that's a it's a big void in terms of like well who am i going to be who is going to be my role model but also, your mother isn't there, so there are no yeah. hugs. Yeah, There's yeah. no kind of, oh, well, yeah. you must feel blue. Yeah, no, yeah. no, shut up. Get on. Go go over there. You know, it's <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of hard... I, was, I think it was a tough environment, but yeah. good if... To, good, I learned a lot of really valuable things. Did you learn how to accept hugs eventually? Eventually, I have persuaded women to let me hug them. <laughs> oh, let them hug me, yes. Yeah. No, of course, you. I mean, after you left, it was just like a pursuit. Right. You know, desperate pursuit. Yeah. And so Love then, me, somebody. Yeah. And then you have to learn how to treat, you know, how to actually appreciate women for being women, which yeah. takes a lot longer. Well, yeah, it's, culturally, they're having it, it's a big issue now. Yeah. <laughs> they're not just things we play with, they're human beings. But I mean, you have to learn that. I, I think no, that's nobody true. Nobody teaches you. And also, when you, you guys, I mean, you get you've got co-ed, so you you know sure. you, uh, that at least you know uh, they're you around. Go grow with them, right? You know, right? See, right? They're there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Try to talk to them. We <laughs> yeah. had to climb, climb, climb over schools and roofs and things to get towards them. So Oxford, you went to Cambridge. Cambridge, yes. sorry. I get the f- too confused. Is one better than the other? Are they both equally as... Uh... No, they have different kind of personalities. I mean, if you look at Python, yeah. Michael Palin and Terry Jones went to Oxford. John Cleese, me, and Graham Chapman were at Cambridge. Uh-huh. And I think about Oxford are very much more... <laughs> they're prissier. All the politicians in England come out of Oxford, uh-huh. always. So they're much more controlling... Um, Cambridge is much more flamboyant. We produce spies, right. basically spies against from the Russians. <laughs> We're all Cambridge, and yeah. they are either gay or extremely flamboyant yeah. and drunk. Yeah. And so they, there's much more <laughs> enjoyment in, in of Cambridge. <laughs> and show business is tolerated. It's kind of an okay thing to do to be successful in Cambridge. Whereas, whereas in Oxford, you sort of have to apologise for it and and write diaries forever. So it's Alan Bennett, and we're not, not supposed to be very into showbiz much, you know. <laughs> Except politics is just like not entertaining show business. Well, politics is, I don't quite know what politics is, but I think there's a degree they do at Oxford they don't do at Cambridge. This is why they all do, they all go to. But that's funny that the the prerequisite for spying is flamboyance and drinking and uh, the tolerance of show business. I guess there is a lot of of acting and role playing when you're, you're a professional spy. There was a famous one. I think his name was Burgess, and he was in uh, America. He's English, and he's in America, and he was an extraordinary alcoholic. And every night he got drunk and would tell everybody he was a Russian spy. <laughs> and they went, yeah, yeah, shut the fuck up. You know, it's like, it's like, he, he was saying that even he after was the- a Russian spy. <laughs> he, he ran away. That, Eventually, he escaped. That, that was the uh, that, that was his big front. Is, I, is I, that he was so upfront about it that people didn't believe it? It's I kind don't of genius. Think it was a clever double bluff. I, yeah. He was just, just drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get there, like, so you, you how how did that? Uh, so the state, how does it work? So they, they, they you got a scholarship for for being. A good student? Yeah, in those days, you, I, you get accepted by the college. There are 23 colleges at, at Cambridge, and a college will take you on. 
And then I 23 was colleges in different places? There's in not the one? same town. Okay, okay. You know, so, so, so the different, different colleges in the university. So there's an engineering college? There's a, a no, English they're or, not. Just, just, no, you, you're in a college and that houses you and has you, but you could be doing maths, you could be doing art, you okay. could be doing architecture. Right. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And then you go and study in the university oh, place okay. for whatever you're doing. Right, I get it. Uh, and so... What did you get accepted to do? English, mm. which is nothing at all. <laughs> it's important. I mean, I, I no, you just read. I didn't do much except do comedy. I actually stumbled into comedy very early on. I met John Cleese in my second term. Yeah, and I auditioned and I did a, a college review. And I, my first piece I did ever publicly was a piece he'd written. Really? Yeah. So, but you weren't like I guess in terms of like when I look at some of the lyrics of the songs, you weren't you weren't uh, in any way obsessed with the you know the poetry of Alexander Pope or Swift or the funnier Shakespeare like those kind of like uh, you know historical satirists. Sure, I still am. I love I love Swift. I love Pope. Uh, I, I I absolutely. I it was nice to read English literature. But even Chaucer was hilarious. Absolutely. Yeah. But the thing was, we're thinking about English. Studying English is you don't have to go to the lectures. You yeah. can read the book in three minutes. You've he can everything he's going to say at the lecture. You could have skimmed through. Right, and right. Then, and really, they're interested in what you think. Right. So, but you have to read the text and then respond to it. So, what is the trajectory uh, assumed of somebody studying English at Cambridge? Did, was it like here? Like you just sort of like, well, that's a degree I have now. I uh, I work at a photomat or a, a copy store or what? I guess or you teach. go on to be a teacher. What I don't do? honestly know what. I guess you could be a journalist. You could be a writer. Right. I have an English degree, and I'm yeah. in my garage talking to Eric Idle. And I'm here in the garage with my English degree talking to you. <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, I th it's nice because I would find that at, at Cambridge, everybody just studying everything else had already read the same books I was reading. Right. So, <laughs> but they were becoming architects right right or mathematicians yeah, they, or yeah you know, they, so, they, they actually had the foresight to create a life for themselves that had some security perhaps but it turned out that was a good it was a good thing to be because i didn't have anything particular to do so i went into rep for about six minutes and then i got into writing comedy what's rep repertory theater oh okay uh, we did oh what a lovely war leicester rep and then but basically while you were at cambridge after just leaving oh so when you're at cambridge you meet cleese and you meet uh who graham i no graham had gone down but i met him at the end of that year i met michael palin and terry jones at the uh, edinburgh festival Right, but Cle but when you were at Cambridge and started doing comedy, because I talked to uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, who I believe could not get into. He was turned down from the what is it, the Footlights? The Footlights. Club? Now the Footlights, the, you know, this is sort of like important for uh, yeah. But he went on to study uh, clowning with a, a master. I forget the guy's right. name. Right, but uh, but I think it was a, a sort of. Uh, deciding factor in his comedic uh, career was that he was turned down from Footlights. And what, was Footlights a historical club that had been there forever? 1883. Uh-huh. And uh, what was the idea of it? I was just a, was a, a review society, a comedy society, and we it had its own club room. So it was a little stage at one end and a bar at the other end, <laughs> which opened at 10.30 at night, and you could yeah. stay as late as you wanted. Was, uh, so that was our social life. Yeah. They, they did lunches. So from about Free my drinks? Free no. no, you got paid. No. Yeah, yeah. But drink. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the pub's close at 10. Right. So, so. You know, <laughs> oh, when we opened at 10.15, it was really good, you know, so <laughs> you just went on. Um, but it, it was very social. And then I got to watch all these people like John Cleese and Bill Hardy and Tim Taylor, all, all performing and doing stuff. Yeah. And that's the only way you can learn comedy. 
Yeah, and what were so? What was the thing that he wrote that you performed? Like, how did you get in? Did you have to audition? What is the process? Yes, you, you have do. to write a piece and audition, which I did. Uh, and I got in with Jonathan Lynn, who's a film director. Johnny Lynn. He did uh, Nuns on the Run, and he did uh, Vinny, oh. my cousin Vinny. Oh yeah, that's a big yeah. movie. Yeah. And what uh, what did you write? Do you I remember? I wrote a sketch, but the one I did with John was actually based on. It's called BBC BC. Yeah. And it was a BBC newsreader. Yeah. Good even, here is the news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, and I did the weather forecast. You right. Know? Uh, there have been, over the last few days, it's been a bit rough. There's been plague of frogs, lizards, locusts. Oh, the apocalyptic boils, weather forecast. Yeah. yeah. And now moving in from the northeast. Yeah. Frogs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. And after that, death of all the firstborn. Yeah. Sorry about <laughs> that, Egypt. <laughs> so you just, so, you, you went biblical. It was a biblical news. It yeah, was yeah. BBC BC. So that got you in uh that got me to know a learner please came across to me and was introduced and he asked me to join the footlights and i never heard of it so he said no just come and audition so we did and we got in because i watched some old peter cook stuff and Dudley Physical. Moore, yeah. and it just seemed like you know the way he approached characters was something like the way you guys did. Were you guys contemporaries, or was he older? Peter had gone down about four years, but his voice was everywhere. Everybody mm -hmm. talked like this because he's E.L. Wisty. I'd yeah. like to be a miner, but I don't have the Latin. <laughs> I did the mining exam. They said, what is your name? And I got 50% on that. <laughs> I, they, like There was this weird kind of like tradition. It's because I watched some of the... Uh, the goon show mm. and there was just really some relentless satirizing uh, uh, uh between classes yeah you, you know that like you know the irish took a big hit uh, on some of the goon show stuff you know? <laughs> <laughs> well they come and, out of the army those goon show people yeah. came out of the army yeah of peter sellers and harry yeah. seekham all that lot uh, and then after them came peter cook and dudley moore and john and they would be on the fringe and they were the first satirists yeah and they mocked the Prime Minister and the Army and the Queen. And was the that happening when you were in college? That's when I, 90, just before I got there, 1962, I saw that show and it changed my life. So, it, oh, really? Yes. It, I thought, I laughed so hard. I couldn't believe you were allowed to laugh at these things. Right. Because you weren't allowed to laugh at these things openly in school. Right. Or, or even say it, especially no, in, in a government in run school. Not in, not in front of. Uh, the grown authority, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you said everything, but you didn't. So the the mid '60s was a time where like a lot of that stuff broke open, right? It was a, a time of satire in England. '63, '64. There was a show called "That Was the Week That Was" on television, right. which was David Frost, and so that brought down a government. It actually changed the Conservative government. The power, the power of satire on television. And what what else was going on? Like, because I've talked to, uh, yeah, I talked to musicians, and it seemed like that. In London at that time in the 60s, there was just so so much going on with theater, with music, like, you know, the, everything was like changing very quickly. It was a renaissance. Yeah. And it was because there was nothing there. There's bomb sites. There aren't another generation of people who are on television. There yeah. wasn't any television. Right. There aren't another people who are comedians. They were in the army. Yeah. So we were we came onto an open oh, playing field and right. created art. Uh, the young people. The young people. All of the misfits were sent off to art college. Yeah. And they all became rock and roll. Right. All the Who, uh, the Beatles, the Stones largely, all were in art colleges. And yeah. they came out of art colleges. Yeah. And they were the sort of bad boys. And so they started early. But our, we were the same generation. And yeah. our lot went into, 
you know, eventually television and right. radio. Oh, that's uh, that's wild, and it's uh, it's sort of interesting that all those guys, like when you talk about, and this is just me talking about music, when you bring up Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, which is a fairly esoteric reference, that those records came through uh, in Britain. That like you, there must have been some premium put on, like where'd you get that record? Like it was must have been sort of difficult to get those records. Well, I think that was folky. That was the folk world. Uh, yeah, was, but, it was kind of a bit hip for a little while. Yeah, it was folk. Right. People wore, but even the blues records, like the, the thrill of getting those because all those bands the who and and uh, the stones and you know, the beatles not not to the same degree were guys that were influenced by american blues turned it inside out and then resold it to america it was kind of genius i think the answer to that question is they came in on the banana boats into uh-huh. liverpool uh-huh. and they came from the you know the west indies and they came from america liverpool's a port yeah like hamburg's a so port. the records did so the records they... came with sailors yeah we brought them in yeah, and yeah. Like, they liked it like the music and that the music spread that way yeah it's sort it, it it kind of blows me away what was going on there and theater was like a crazy then too right theater was angry young men they were protesting it changes over from being rather polite theater of noel coward yeah and that goes and becomes right. very dated suddenly and there's a play called look back in anger by yeah. john osborne right that's which it, yeah. changes everything right and so they become they were known as the angry young men and that's and that that happens simultaneously that's at the same to time the rock and roll as teenagers and early 20s yes so, so so like now you have this like this this open it's like the wild west you know for for comedy like you know that the the floodgates have been open and there's nobody stopping you getting in yeah you're in fact we need courage to come into television yeah frost yeah. gave us all jobs yeah yeah writers and how did you meet uh, J- uh, jones and palin if they were uh, at uh, at oxford because we i was part of the edinburgh festival okay right. the cambridge footlights yeah. and they were part of the oxford review so yeah. we went to check them out so when you get to edinburgh which is still a festival it's the same festival every year the one that's go, still going on Except now. Except it's yeah. huge now. I know. And everybody looks for comedians. But Beyond the Fringe yeah. refers to the Edinburgh Festival yeah. Fringe. Yeah. That's where they came out of. Yeah. And so we're only a few years later. There's yeah. a tradition for Oxford and Cambridge to send reviews there. Yeah. Um, we, 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 we were part of that. And that's where you met them. That's where I went to see them and where I saw Palin first performing and, and Jonesy first performing. And you know, you go and say hello. Yeah. They're the same age. You're doing the same things. So funny. They yeah. were so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Palin was very funny. He was hilarious. I mean, I saw him performing for the first time. Yeah, and I never forget the sketch. I yeah, mean, it was, he was in. He is really funny. Yeah. What was the, what was the nature of this? Well, sketch? he came on stage and he was playing an old performer, and he said, "You know, um, hello, every people. I'd like uh, very nice to be here." And he looked down, and there's this big present beside yeah. him. He said, "Oh, what, what's this?" And he looks down, and it says, "Oh, to Mikey, from the audience with love." Yeah. Oh, every people. Oh, my gosh. I'm so touched. Yeah. I thought I was too old and out of touch and nobody cared yeah. about me anymore. And I was, well, I don't know what to do. I can only sing my biggest hit, When Love Breaks Your Heart in a Million Tiny Pieces. <laughs> when Love... And the box blew up. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great joke and he played it so well it was just the emotion of it all you know <laughs> so like, did you start writing together shortly after that or uh, we then he they're there at Oxford and then we yeah. finish behind where it came so we finish our courses and then we find ourselves hmm. all writing for the Frost Report which is right. a, a BBC you just show. all got hired and so we're all hired yeah, yeah. we're writing he's yeah. writing with Terry I was writing a bit, I think, with Graham. It's so funny in my memory. I don't know, like, I didn't know him, Frost, as a, uh, you know, as a comedian. 
Well, that's, he's not very funny. He wasn't very good, but he yeah. was a good host, and he right. was very good at knowing who was funny. Right. So he, he, he got he would bring people in. Like he probably gave us all jobs. Right. So, I'm 23. I'm writing on this big hit show on the BBC. And then, like, so that the because, like, I think one of the things that you know, Python, I, 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 outside of uh, just comedically, was uh, was revolutionary was because of the the structure of lack of structure. The the movement, you know, from sketch to sketch, piece to piece, it was uh, it obviously wasn't random but it didn't abide by any any sort of set structure you just well, kind of flowed lyrically almost we got rid of punchlines yeah uh, but we don't forget we'd written for all these other shows which we other were ones? professional writers the yeah two ron is uh you know tommy cooper everybody written for various other big english comedians did you across. didn't you write a children's show for a while and then we were on a tv <laughs> show called do not adjust your set who was all of you i was asked to do it and i asked for mike and terry to be with me yeah and then uh terry gilliam eventually came and joined us and that's where you met terry Bizarre. Gilliam. yes he just came in on the kids show on the kids show and mike and terry hated him <laughs> and i said no no he's got something you he's know, american you, He's American. Yeah. What the hell do we need this American for? Yeah. And I said, well, he's, he can draw. He's funny. He's, yeah. he's very weird. He's yeah. cute. So, <laughs> so I persuaded him. <laughs> yeah, to bring uh, in Terry. And then, yeah, absolutely. And so that I think that seems to make good sense to me that you all sort of started to explore possibilities on a children's show. It was nice we had a children's show because we decided we wouldn't talk down to children. We'd yeah. just do what we found funny. But we couldn't use blue, right? Which is also a very good discipline. Yeah, it's so easy to just be rude. Yeah, uh, for a shock. So you had to be, you had to sweeten it. It wasn't so. never sweet. It's kind of in your face. It's still a bit sort of odd. Yeah, and we won lots of awards. It was very popular, and then it was on at five twenty-five, and so a lot of people would come home from work early to watch it. Grown-ups, grown-ups, yeah, including John. And Graham, who were writing movies for uh, Peter Sellers at the time, they, 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 they would stop and watch our show. They they were uh, what movies did they write for Peter? Magic uh, Christian, were, yes. Oh, uh, the Terry Southern bit. John's in that, yeah. And so is Graham, I think, in a scene. They were rewriting Terry Southern things, and uh, maybe some other things for Frost. There was a Peter Cook one, The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. I th they might have been involved in that. There were there were serious you know, scriptwriters, but they locked into the to the children's show because they're like they something. watched the children's show because John said it was the funniest thing on television. So they wanted to just laugh. What were you doing that was different than what might have been thought of as a children's show? Um. I think it was just more in-your-face kind of Python thing. It yeah. wasn't. It was kind of silly. Yeah. It was very silly. Yeah. And then we had this group called the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, uh -huh. who were on every week. It yeah. was from an art school. Really weird group. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the whole thing was very sort of. It was kind of funny. It was only about twenty-five minutes, and the kids loved it. The kids loved it, and then the adults loved it too. Which is, and we won awards, and that's a, that's an amazing feat. Well, it, culturally, that's it seems to be the the drive of the movie industry now. Is like if you can get kids and grown ups to enjoy the thing, then it's good. It, 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 like uh, Adventure Time is a, an anime. A lot of the animated stuffs like that now. Right? Have you ever had? You know, people who watched it as a kid who who went on to creative professions come up to you and say, like, that changed my entire view of things. People remember that show yeah. of a certain age. Yeah. But then there's Python and then there's, I mean, you know, it depends what age you come in. Yeah. You know, what you tune into. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore had their own series called yeah. Not Only But Also. And that yeah. was really funny. Yeah. The BBC wiped it. Why? Save tape. Oh, oh really? Yeah. So it's like two-inch Ampex. They wiped it. Yeah. So only the bits that remain are on film. 
because they huh. shot some film bits, like the Leaping Nuns of Norwich. Yeah. Which is Peter on a trampoline, <laughs> bobbing up and down. Yeah, the Leaping Nuns of Norwich. Very, very funny. <laughs> he was hilarious. I knew him. I loved him. He's a door. Was, he, was, he was unique because he was the only one who did improv. Nobody else. The improv wasn't existing in our day. It was all much. scripted. But Peter could improvise an entire cabaret. Oh, really? Yeah. Absolutely. And he was unique in that way. He was very unique in that way. And everybody did his voices and he, he went on television. And yeah, he was groundbreaking. And do you had, do you had, did you eventually uh, have a relationship with him? Yeah, yeah. We, went, we got great to be great friends. We were on a film, Yellowbeard, where we had a lot of fun. Uh, we went up the Nile together with John Cleese and Stephen Fry. We had this great trip up the Nile. You went up the Nile? Yeah. Did just as a vacation, an adventure? John, to celebrate his 100th, his 100th wedding with his wife, uh, who he now doesn't refer to, uh, took <laughs> about in a good way. <laughs> 40 friends yeah. up the Nile for three weeks in a, in a, like, uh, on a boat. On a boat. It's yeah. an amazing time. So it's like, you know, you've got Peter Cook every night to make yeah. you laugh. You've got William Goldman was on there. You know, really? Stephen Fry would sit on the deck every day and read this children's book called Bunter on the Nile <laughs> at tea time. <laughs> I mean, it was just great. Oh, that's amazing. That was amazing. Plus, Egypt is the most fantastic place. Have you ever been? No. Oh, my God. It's like if you go down into those tombs, they've only just been revealed, so it's like fresh paint on the walls. Yeah, oh, real, uh, Well, because they finished and they killed them, you know, but yeah. They, yeah, they sealed it. <laughs> so it is an extraordinary, it's like alien world. I can't, yeah, it, it, and that was what year was that? And then, uh, boo, uh, 90, um, possibly th three. Oh, wow. And, 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 92 perhaps I can't imagine what it's like no, I guess you can just go see it but I, I think it, there's certain parts are dangerous still but I think it's just the most wonderful trip I ever took and how far did you go where did it start we went all the way up from um, from uh, the what do you call the Cairo yeah and then we got on the boat there and we went all the way up to the first cataract where there's a dam. Yeah. And so then we got on a bus, and that's two hours further up. You go to Abu Simbel, which is a, a lake that, uh, flooded. They flooded it, but they raised this temple up 300 feet. Yeah. So it's still, the sun still hits on the longest day and hits the pharaoh through yeah. that cave. You know, oh, so, wow. Um, and it's, yeah, no, it is an extraordinary place to visit what do you make of it like it, mystically do you well do it's you, five thousand years ago it's crazy right it, it's very long time ago and they're, they're building these pyramids yeah um and are you a superstitious mystical person in any way do you think that they're not so much yeah <laughs> no but i think it's very interesting this is our, our early cultures you yeah. know and uh, uh, what they're doing um, and they're, they're doing hieroglyphic writing. We only really recently discovered how to read what they were writing. And hieroglyphics are back with emojis. You know, that, it's funny, it's full circle. Really, I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. We're going backwards. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're gonna be completely primitive, but completely equipped <laughs> yeah. with, with technology. Yeah, that's what's I happening. Actually, I have, there's a thing on the, on the web, you can actually translate your email into Egyptian. I, and I did it. I sent it to people. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And they were probably like, do I have these on my phone? How come I don't know what it's saying? Dear Pharaoh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did uh, the, the Python deal happen? The Python deal happened because John and Graham were watching our show. And they, John had been offered a show for the BBC, a late night show, on a Sunday night where yeah. there wasn't a show. Yeah. And he, I don't think he wanted to do it with Graham alone, and he didn't want to be a star himself. 
So he wanted Michael Palin. So he talked to Michael, and Michael, we've been offered another show. And, and so we all met together. So it's like a, a strange mix of the 1948 show meets uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set. Yeah. And so we said, oh, well, we'll just do this show until our studio's ready to do the other show we're going to do, which is 9 o'clock on ITV for three quarters of an hour. Yeah. So we never got to that. Right. But uh, so we, it's like they didn't stay. And we went to the BBC. They said, what do you want to do? And we said, I um, don't know. Yeah. And they said, are you going to have uh, music? Mm, maybe. Yeah, you're going to have uh, film. Oh, film. Film's good. I yeah. think we'll have film. Yeah. Uh, and they said, oh, just go away and make 13. Yeah. That's what they said. Yeah. And they didn't care. They didn't watch us. How much of the, their culture? Because you, know, you watch a lot of uh, Python and yeah, it's sort of timeless. But there was a lot going on that, that, that was... That was pretty radical. I mean, was it happening around you, or were you guys so insulated? Well, I mean, I'd been in London, I think, since 65, so yeah. I've been living there, you know, yeah. and there was 66, and then the Beatles, and then there was the Summer of Love. Did you go see the Beatles? I never saw the Beatles uh, when I was working for Frost. Uh, George came on and was doing TM, Transcendental oh, Meditation Oh, so at that point. Stuff. Is that where you met him? Uh, no, I didn't meet him till about after the Beatles. I met him in '75 here in Hollywood, uh-huh. uh, the screening of the Holy Grail yeah. at the old Directors Guild. But um, you know, we weren't really part of rock and roll. I mean, we sort of. But the know, culture was very permissive, it, it, creatively, right? I mean, well, yeah, for you, us in television, it was totally right. And we got to make. Uh, with nobody, there was no time slot. There was right. nothing on television at ten thirty. <laughs> so that's for the start. Second is. It's on late at night. Nobody's watching, and we were in color yeah. by three months. Yeah. Otherwise, it would look really dated. Right. And then, more importantly, nobody told us what to do, and we didn't know what to do, so we just did it anyway. Yeah. And and you that you you just figured out how how did the structure unfold? What, how did you it, decide? Just we to- we had lots of conversations. We couldn't agree on anything, so we just started to write it, and then we would just start to put things on a board. You say, well, we're, we're doing thirteen shows. Well, that's a bit like that one, so let's move it over here or put things together. And um, you know, we the, the, I think the fortuitous thing is we got Gilliam. Yeah, and Gilliam does all these links. Yeah, the, and it the looks weird like animated that link. weird. Very peculiar, interesting art style. Yeah. It, ma- it frames it all. And yeah. It makes it look like it knows what it, it has some shape. Right. And I think that's the very fortuitous thing. And then you would just like, I think the thing that I always remember is that, you know, in between sketches, you would just cut to just beats of like maybe crazy, I like to bang bricks together, you know, like just these moments. Right. That would just kind of recur for no reason. There, there was, because in, in my mind, in American comedy, there was there's no real tradition of absurdism that that is as defined as some of the stuff you did, and I think that 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 seems to come from uh, from England. If I uh, yes, there was absurd theater. There's out the Albert, the Males Brothers. There was a sort of there is an absurd tradition and a nonsense tradition from Lear, Edward Lear, you know, going on. Yeah, uh, but ours was, I think, because we could. Right. We were fucking about. You know, it's like... It wasn't intellectual. Well, it was just... With the well, way it you... was sort of... I mean, you know, we, it was, we don't want to be mistaken for yeah. a show that says, and now something completely different, and yeah. then play a music yeah. song. Right. So we adapted their very slogan and turned it against them. Right. So I think we like to play with our audience. Yeah. Yeah. Say, well, this will right. really... This will screw them up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the three-sided record. Yeah. Don't tell them. <laughs> 
yeah. Just let them play. Here, you'll love this side. Yeah, yeah. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> People are seriously disturbed by that. They, yeah. still, they still haven't recovered from the shock <laughs> of not finding the record yeah. side. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so, it's so weird, the, the sort of things that, as I think about it now, when I was watching it when I was 13 or whatever, the, the stuff that sticks in your mind, you, you know, the... <laughs> The Sam Peckinpah Film Festival. That was insane. As a kid, you know, with the no fingers and the bleed. Right. It's uh, it's Sam Peckinpah's Salad Days. Yeah. And there was this innocuous Julian Slade musical yeah, called yeah. Salad Days. Where yeah, they right. all, anyone for tennis. Yeah, right. You know, and it's all very jolly. All very 20s. Yeah. And then with Sam Peckinpah films in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the tennis racket's thrown, it cuts somebody's head off and there's blood <laughs> everywhere, you know. <laughs> I think we were, <laughs> I think we were, I think we just pushed each other. I, you know, if you're in a gang yeah. and nobody else is in charge, you go, and you don't want to do anything that's been done. Right. That's the other thing. So you that are. That drives, yeah, that's you're important. You're advancing it a little bit because, oh, no, that's a bit, that's a bit obvious. That's a bit too Ronnie's. We'll sell it to them yeah. if the sketch is a bit obvious. So, right. But, but I think, you know, just putting in things like Gilliam stands there with a ferret through his head as yeah. a Viking says, however, <laughs> and then you move on. You go, what is that? <laughs> but it's and you it, don't need to answer that question. No, right? But it it thrills people at home because they're not seeing people do that. Well, I think that was like if anything speaks to the time and the freedom you had. The idea of not doing anything that's happened before it creatively is is profound. Like you know, like and you guys were able to do it. I think we had the opportunity and we ex- we did use it. Was it always a fight? I mean, no. I mean, it's a fight because you want your material on. Right. And we would argue about whether the chair should be a comfy chair or a straight-back chair or yeah. a hard-back chair very seriously. Yeah. But it's because you care about your picture of what may be funniest. So we did, you know, we argued entirely all the time yeah. about whether the material is good enough, where it should stop here. And I think that's healthy. Sure, of that's course. That's like, yeah. and great criticism. Yeah. You get great criticism. People are saying, you know, I thought for the first page that was really funny. Yeah. But it stopped being funny. So let's us, you know, we'd move them around or we'd just, you know, together we'd all barnstorm the thought. So it was like by aggressive committee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't... Um, it, there were no emotions involved. No, right, right. It was like people were the British very are better. The British were better at that. <laughs> better at no emotions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they've gone all sort of touchy-feely now. I blame Diana. You know, once they started caring about some uh, upper-class git, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> running into a wall with an Arab in Paris. You know, you've got it. It's all over for the British. <laughs> They're just the same as everybody else. Uh, Bring out your hankies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was the end of it. That was, for me, the end of it. But yeah. I was here. Yeah, yeah. you'd gotten out. I, yes, I learned. <laughs> you, you saw it coming down. Tougher world of America, <laughs> where there's no sympathy for people just because they're sick <laughs> or poor. Yeah, on any level, <laughs> on yeah. any level at all. So there was no emotions involved, but th- there was competition and and just sort of you kind constantly uh, hard on yourselves to do the best product, basically. I believe so, and yeah. that's why John left after the third series because he thought we were beginning to repeat ourselves. Well, and he'd had enough, and, and was, he was quite right. And off he went, and he read, he read, did Faulty Towers. Yeah, and we did a mini series, half a series, and then I left because I said, look, it's not, it's not the same without John. There was, there's no the tension. So you, were you good? Were you upset when John left? Was the rest uh, of the crew like, why would you do this? We got a good thing going. I think we were disappointed in various levels. Graham was absolutely desperate because he needed the money, yeah. so we did do a second little mini series. It's not, it's got some funny bits in. And then 
We when said, did... oh, stop that. And then what was good was that John was happy to work with us on movies. Right. So then we wrote The Holy Grail. Did you all write it? Yeah. Yeah. And it, that was sort of, a, 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 that must have been a challenge to, you know, to, you had a story and you had to follow it. We didn't have a story. You didn't. When you look at the first drafts of The Holy Grail, it's set in Harrods yeah. <laughs> and people in the ant department and toupee department. And, <laughs> and it, so it's all over the place. Right. And then when we came back, we said, no, 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 stop all that. It's yeah. got to be the story of King Arthur. It's got to be medieval. He's going to be looking for the grail. You know, that's, and so yeah. that gave us a, some kind of shape. But again, we still had various disparate things happening. Yeah. I had to put it into shape when I did spam a lot. Yeah. I finally made some sense out of it <laughs> and put a shape on because it's it's clearly the seven samurai. You you get the guys together, you round them up, then you go on the quest. Right. You know, but, but the, <laughs> the, the movie was in any bloody shape, you know, we moved it around a lot. But Graham was consistent, you moved him Graham through. was consistent and you know, yeah. uh, we understand quest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll do is the plot. He, he and Graham like in uh, also it, it's interesting how aware you all were of the you know the characters, even if they were only for a minute or two, who would play them? Like it, it seems like there was. How did that sort of happen? What did you guys cast each other, or was it uh, you know I made this and I'm doing this? We always wrote first. Yeah. Finish the writing. Uh-huh. Finish the editing. So nobody could hang on to bits they loved because they were going to be in it. Yeah. So then we would cast. Yeah. And usually it was pretty obvious. You know, Cleese played hard, arrogant, nasty people. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, Terry Jones played the frumpy little women. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Graham played, you know, sort of slightly bewildered people, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Brian and yeah. King yeah. Arthur. Right. Uh, and the rest of it we would say Eric or Mike. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we'd say. So we played those little, you know, middle class, working class people. Yeah, we yeah. enjoy playing. Yeah, the, the doofuses, the enlightened yeah. doofuses. Like, Eric or Mike? <laughs> what was that? What was what was Mike's bit in the, in the grill where they're just playing in the dirt? Yeah, he's in the mud. You yeah. say, well, yeah, yeah. You could have called me. Yeah, I didn't know. The king comes along. Yeah, oh, yeah. king, eh? Very nice. <laughs> and who voted for you then? You don't vote for kings. Oh, oh, charming. How did he become king? Well, the lady of the lake threw... Oh, nice. Motion, bincing ponds, throwing swords. It's no system for... Basis for a system of government. Right, right. You yeah, know. Yeah, the enlightened it's, it's guy. It's terrific. It's wonderful <laughs> stuff. It's really abuse. Oh, uh, did you have fun doing those things? Writing very much so, yeah. I think. I think the actual filming was always miserable because we were up in scotland and it was wet and damp and we yeah. didn't have enough money but it was funny and then you guys did it was the ruddles after the grail it was right after python split up i had my own tv series called rutland weekend television yeah and i did it with neil innes and neil would do a song or two a week yeah and he would send me the tapes and he sent me one and it was so beatly yeah and i suddenly had this thought of the ruttles yeah and I had this idea of the guy talking to camera and the camera moving away yeah. and him starting to run after it. And I thought, that's funny. <laughs> and so we saw, showed that on Saturday Night Live. Uh, and uh, we had letters yeah. to the Ruttles. Yeah. And Lorne said, what are you doing? I said, I think I'm doing a documentary on these guys. He said, we'll do it for NBC. Oh, and that's uh, right. Uh, yeah. I saw that. The, so, what, we're in it for the, we're only, what, what was the title of the documentary? The, all You Need Is Cash. All You Need Is Cash. <laughs> yeah. And I did a sequel called Can't Buy Me Lunch, yeah. where I went around people like Tom Hanks and Gary Shandling, yeah. and they talked about the influence of the Ruttles on their lives. Yeah. And oh, Tom that. Hanks cried. Oh, that's great. Just brilliant. I mean, I, I would go around in my Mac as the interviewer and interview yeah. them. Yeah. And yeah. There, there was some brilliant stuff on that. How, when you were, like, when did you start to feel... You know, along these lines, because yeah, I think out of all the the crew, you know, America and you as a comedic personality seem to embrace each other. 
and and the the American comedic community, you sort of like you you seem to be the most active in kind of like you, you, you know being the guy from Python who's like hanging out with Shanling, hanging out with right. these people. When did that start to happen? It must have been sort of an overwhelming. Uh, amount of respect that came your way and it must have been surprising initially it was very surprising it happened in 74 when we first came and opened the holy grail and we were trapped in the theater by 2,000 people yeah coming with trying to get that coconut signed yeah and then we met belushi and people Aykroyd. said what is 76 75 76 70, yeah. and then i think i first did 76 i thirsted snl so i hosted it like second season like- second season second show oh wow and and I, you know, I loved, I love comedy people. Sure. And, that, that, and yeah. so it was, it was fascinating to be in their world. Yeah. I think I hosted it four times in the seventies. And and what was it? What was the? Did, did it seem the writing process there compared to to Python or what? <laughs> yeah, the drinking, the drug yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, they would work on a Tuesday night and they'd smoke enormous amounts of marijuana yeah. in their offices. I yeah. mean, the idea that you'd have a joint at the BBC is unheard of. <laughs> but they had all these offices barricaded off. Yeah. And they'd write all night. Yeah. And it was completely different, and they'd never... Because ours is a writer's commune. Yeah. The writers were in charge. The yeah. writers did everything. But theirs is much more of a, a performer's show. Right. And they would build the sets just on a pitch. Right. <laughs> and they'd say, whoa, this yeah. is... Uh, and they would never re- have time to rewrite, and you never had time to rehearse or learn it. You just read it off cards. Yeah. Because we would rehearse for five days, yeah. our, our Python shows. Yeah. So we were word perfect. And you were also shooting on film, weren't you, a lot we, of the time? We times? would go and shoot for, for, for all of the series on film... There were inserts throughout, yeah, yeah. so we had to write the whole lot first. Yeah, you can't just kind of you know, no, do so that the day carefully after. Carefully planned, right. very carefully planned. Um, whereas, you know, um, Sunday night was live. Yeah, you know, it was this course. live yeah. um, vibe and the New York and you know quite different. And how? Who did you sort of gravitate towards when you like? Who did you hang out with? Oh, well, I love Gilda. Yeah, uh, and I I liked Aykroyd very much. He was the only one I thought could actually have been in Python because he was a good writer and a great performer. Yeah, and he was very like what we did, which yeah. is writing and performing. Yeah, and then uh, you know Bill Murray came in. I That's so funny. I hang hung with Chevy who was hurt because he'd been Gerald Ford and was in bed. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a... <laughs> you know, New York is great. I mean, yeah. I, it was just wonderful to... I mean, I've been through London for 10 years, yeah. and now New York was a nice place to go but to. But I must have... I have to assume that they were, like, just, like, you know, when you got here, when Python got here, they are like, it was a completely new thing and completely different than anything that was happening in America, and it just sort of, like, this is... They great. were kind of fans when we first went right, along yeah. to the show. Yeah. Uh, they were kind of, like, gobsmacked. Cause yeah. Because it had just come on PBS as well as the movie opened so it was right. a perfect storm in New York oh it's great yeah and where'd you meet Robin Williams I met Robin Williams in England in London in a nightclub in a it's called a comic strip it was the top of a strip club uh-huh. in uh, 1980 and he'd been filming Popeye in oh, Malta yeah. and somebody said you gotta see this you gotta see this guy oh, so you, you gotta to meet him, him. You went and to see him perform. I first. went to see him perform, and he just killed. And then we met, and then we went out to dinner, and you know, and then it he was moved like in forever. Then, yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I loved him. I mean, you yeah. just you can't believe anybody could be that quick. But. Yeah, it's a real loss, you know. But I guess, uh, what do you know? I don't want to bring the whole interview down, but I, I miss him. Well, he had a brain disease. It was yeah, Louis, I know. Yeah. Louis Body's disease. It's terrible. And I wondered, because I used to, and the first one I knew him, I'd just follow him around all the nightclubs. Yeah. He and me would go out. And yeah. He'd have enormous amounts of cocaine and go on the road, keep going on until about four in the morning. Yeah. When he's finally, he would seize up and no longer be funny. Yeah. Because of the dreaded white powder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just I lock know, it Thank up. God we can go to bed now. <laughs> 
But I wondered if eventually, because I'm comedy hostage, Zerling people have these brain problems, whether that in fact helped it or caused it or, you know. Yes, yeah. I, I think we will find out that it's not think, very good for you. I think that's true. I think that's what, uh, what I, I mean, I tend to think that with uh, uh, MS as well. There are these neurological problems that come from. Uh, uh, I'm sure it's not good. For, no matter what, even if it's just cocaine, what else is chopped yeah. into it? You know sure. what I mean? It's right. not right. really, it's going straight into your yeah. brain. It's not so. like it's FDA approved. You know, <laughs> not yet. Yeah. I mean, this is California. You never know, you know. <laughs> and was it, you were never a drug guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? If it's, I'm English. I'll take anything that's going. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I wasn't, I couldn't afford what he could afford. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so after. Gilliam went on to do the the amazing movies. You did a lot of those movies with him. You know, acted in a couple, right? One, one, only just one. one. Just enough. A, was Munchausen, it? Yeah. Munchausen. Oh my God, yeah. I don't know how he puts that shit together. Oh, why? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was. It was six months of hell. I said I'd rather go back to boarding school than be back on that movie. <laughs> complete chaos but he is wonderful i love him but he's he only's happy when there's chaos uh, oh he's one of those guys oh totally it's like the president he's an animator yeah do you trust walt disney right no <laughs> they're moving bits and pieces around in yeah. their big pictures and they have complete so, control of it so if you're an actor yeah on his show you're just a bit in the scene you know? right right oh right so it's, yeah it doesn't matter if you're there's dangling no human... from something no or yeah what do you mean you fell off <laughs> don't fall off i haven't got the shot yet <laughs> and but we're did you find the time i mean this is what your third book you wrote but this one's a memoir but you've written several books yeah this is uh, I, I wrote a chore diary called the greedy bastard yeah. diary in about 2003 because i was on the road but um this is my autobiography yeah. because i'm getting to that age where you go well you better get it down now or yeah. you won't remember anything and <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, that's an issue you don't seem to be having any of those issues well but jones is gone yeah, mentally. Alas. Yeah, you can't speak. Oh. And that's really sad. And so, you know, so I, I just, anyway, it's the 50th anniversary next year of Python. Yeah. So I thought, they're going to ask us questions. I better get my thoughts down. So, yeah. And I thought, this is a good time to reflect yeah. on the eve of that. And so I went off to France and I wrote and wrote and I would, would just, it was, it's very good. I mean, I'm 75. It's a very good stage to look back at your life and think, what the fuck happened? Look at this. Yeah. It's How weird is that? And I was saying to my wife today, the first 25 years were preparing and then we did Python when I was 26 and for 25 years we did all of that. Yeah. 25, the last 25 years, I came to America. Yeah. I've been in America. Yeah. It's like a three different portions of your life are quite different. It's yeah, in that that the 25 in America, you you sort of adjusted to, you know, figuring out how to, you know, maintain your stature as as a humorist and also function in show business very successfully. Yeah, I mean it was kind of strange to be an, an immigrant at 50. You uh -huh. know, I mean what am I going to do? But it was better than staying in England where they want to pigeonhole you. Right. And then I you know, finally, we we got to make spam a lot, which is really yeah. How did like before we go on sure. to that uh, in writing? Because I I've written a bit myself. Did you find yourself like in the process of writing, like discovering memories and being moved by writing the book? Yeah. Yes. No. I. It's kind of crazy, right? I didn't go to a publisher. I thought I'm going to write the book for me. I want to know what I think and what I feel or what my life feels like to me. And then I'll sell it afterwards yeah. if they want it. But I, I don't want to find I'm overbooked to somebody. Or have an editor on you and you know that kind of Before yeah. I knew what I wanted. Yeah. And what were some of the things, like in terms of looking back at your whole life, both for, you know, in 
darkness and light and whatever in history, you know, what were some of the things where you were like, oh, my God, I, I really hadn't seen it that way? I think what it became for me, I had to try and discover the subject of the book. And yeah. what it became for me, the subject of the book was that generation, how odd that generation was coming out of war. I, I say always, uh, when I was born, Hitler was trying to kill me. Yeah. And now my name's on Mars. Yeah. Because it's on Curiosity, the uh-huh. rover. Yeah. And that's kind of, whoa, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's extraordinary because, you know, it's uh, that, that arc is an, is an amazing time. Yeah. And during which time our science has exploded, our knowledge of science, of the universe, and what we've been able to do. People went to the moon. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it, it is an extraordinary time. It's it's one of the benefits of peace. Yeah, right. And now, it, isn't it sort of interesting that with all those advances and with that sort of uh, hindsight, you know, from a, a you know, real-world war, that, you know, we are now entering, you know, these cultural uh, tribalism again and all this insanity, that the human animal, uh, you know, is is so significantly flawed that progress is, uh, is not, uh, you know, what everybody sees as a positive thing. Yeah, I think it's it's sad. People don't know what war is. You see, I say I, I joke about the younger generation. They think a disaster is when they lose the internet connection. <laughs> Some yeah. people trying to bomb you. Yeah, but war is the really serious thing, and it goes on a lot on the planet. Yeah, and, always. And you know, now we're getting people who divide us because for their own power, uh, and it, that's isn't awful. It, but isn't it surprising? Like, because I, I mean, even like cause you don't talk about class much in America, but do, are I guess it. You know, when I really think about you know history, I mean, it's not surprising how stupid and easily led people are. <laughs> well, well, except they're fighting back. You see, yeah, television, some, some television people. is very powerful, um, and people can talk, and the internet's very powerful, and they can fight back. I mean, who knew that it would be possible to subvert America by these idiotic bloody Russian KGB? Who yeah. knew they were? They're not that smart. Yeah. And also, they don't even have democracy, so it serves them kind of right. Yeah. But uh, and they will lose because yeah. it's better off to be here than there. Yeah. No matter what. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. go fuck for the yourselves. time being. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and do you think like do you ever did you also think about how like you know the the media landscape was much more. Uh, intimate and smaller, you know, back when you were coming up, that uh, y- you know you could get all eyes upon you in a way over time, and now it's uh, so fragmented that I wonder it's hard to know how anybody becomes successful. It's usually not because of their creativity necessarily. Yeah, I mean, there's many more famous people, and <laughs> yeah. the, and the trouble is that America's gone from the pursuit of happiness to the pursuit of fame and money, and yeah. they're not the same things at all. That's true, but, I, and you seem to be pretty happy. Me? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah. Uh, but I came to I came and pursued happiness in America. Yeah. And was I found it. it. Is <laughs> I caught it. Is it a choice, though, or you just find you, do, do you battle anything? You know, like, are there days where you're like, ugh. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, um, it, but it's, it is, I mean, I always look on the bright side. It's not a bad motto. No. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I came here. I, I settled down here. I lived here. I put a child through school. I had a normal How life. How old's your kid? She's now 28. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she went to college, and I loved all that. I loved taking a kid to school. Your wife's American? My wife's from Chicago. She's oh, yeah. American. and uh, Spend time in Chicago? Yeah. It's great, Absolutely. right? It's, it's a great wonderful city. town. It's Lovely. a great town. We opened Spam a lot there. 
Oh, he did? Yeah, I, I picked it. I, they wanted to open in Boston and said, no bloody way. Chicago, the only place, because they don't give a thing about um, New York. You can say They that. don't care. Okay. Yeah. But they, you know, they in, in Boston, they have a slight, you know, chip on their shoulder sure, about sure. New York, and they're always looking over their shoulder. Yeah. But in Chicago, no, this is the people who don't wear shirts in the winter. Oh, yeah. And they all smoke still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's like the French. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell the French. And also, they have a pretty, a pretty decent theater world in chicago totally yeah a very good theater world and they're, they're just very funny people did you did you assume that you know when you, you know what was the impetus like when you said i'm going to make spam a lot you know what what was where did the idea come from well we'd been looking uh, john dupre and i had written a, a musical about cricket which we'd done on radio for uh, and we were looking for a theme and a subject and we were here and uh, I suddenly thought, well, actually, the Grail is a pretty amazing subject because it's like, it's a comic musical. It's a bit like the Ring of the Nibelungs. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the Arthurian legend. Yeah. So you, you can take the large and then mock it as yeah. the small. Right. And also, because we had no horses, you can actually do it on stage. Yeah. And because it's sketchy, it keeps stopping and feels like it should be a song. Yeah. I mean, we, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. It's always been a song, surely. Sure. Yeah. We just never got to write it until the musical. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and in, and in terms of writing songs, like when you saw, at the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, always look on the bright side of life. And I had no idea that it had been recorded by so many different artists and that, you know, it is sort of in the rotation of uh, of songs that uh, people do at weddings and do at funerals. Funerals, more largely, yeah. yes. And that's true. That's number one true at fact. funerals. It's really? a true fact. It's the number one song at funerals in the UK. Which is kind of cute. I like yeah. that, don't you? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I, yeah, it's they don't pay. Mm-hmm. No, I know. <laughs> but you know, it's sort of like Happy Birthday. You know, you can't. How are you going to monitor? Oh, they pay Happy Birthday. No, I don't think so anymore. I think it got released into oh, public domain recently. Right. <laughs> but, but they're I, not charging parties. There's no one making rounds. It was seriously considered as the alternative national anthem in England. And so they sing it whenever they're losing, which is always great. And in fact, when the English were playing the Germans at soccer, football, soccer, yeah. uh, and the uh, Germans were losing in yeah. Berlin, yeah. whole of the German stadium sang Always Look on the Bright Side of Life in uh, English. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that great? Yeah. I love that. And people say, Germans have no sense of humor. Rubbish. <laughs> Bullshit. Listen, the English wouldn't have done that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had a pretty long relationship with George Harrison. Yeah. Now, the Beatles thing is sort of, uh, you know, what what was your experience like knowing a Beatle? Yeah, because like I, when I interviewed Paul, there was I had very weird mixed feelings because there's nothing quite like the the Beatles. <laughs> there's like you know, it, I tend to, I said to him, I think we know we know Beatles songs prenatally for some reason that there's a there's a groove in our brains that's just waiting for them to be put in. And they were our generation, so we knew which album came next. And when it came, we'd run down and get the next Beatle album. Yeah, you know, yeah. That changed the culture completely. Before yeah. then, people wouldn't have bought albums of yeah. rock and roll. So um, they were, you know, they were the they were an extraordinary group, yeah. really creative. Were you friends with all of them? I know Ringo a little uh, now. I see him quite a bit. Um, I never met John. Uh, I've I've um, I've I've seen. Uh, Paul a lot more recently, and he's he's awfully nice. He's really sweet. I mean, and, and memorials and things. He said, "Come on, you need a hug." <laughs> he's, he's, he's so wonderfully down to earth and such a genius he's songwriter funny, too. He's very he's funny. Very well, quick. that was the secret to the Beatles. They were yeah. funny. Yeah. When they came to America, 
everybody knew Ringo's name because yeah. he was funny. Right. He had a funny nose, funny haircut, and he was funny. Yeah. And that's what made the Beatles, I think, when they first hit America. Yeah. All those press conferences. Sure, sure. He's funny. Yeah, it's yeah. It's not that we sing a lot. They were hilarious. And I very identifiable personalities very quickly. They, you know, and they, you know, and they knew how to be themselves, you know, as opposed to be cryptic and weird and, you know. They were being on the up. road since they were 14, you know. It's so crazy. Yeah. So they they done it, and they they, and then you know it it, it got very heavy for them, and the split ups, and you know. So I I was it was interesting for me because I sort of studied it. Yeah. You know to write the Ruttles, yeah. I had to learn everything about them and right. write them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I even played Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And that was quite interesting because his Linda was very pro that she loved it. Oh, she did. She <laughs> yeah. got a kick Paul out of it. Paul was a little bit less, you know, keen on being <laughs> right. Right. But, uh, he's now nice about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and George seemed to be a, a very spiritual guy all the way till you know the end, huh? Well, no, George was always uh, those two, both very naughty, the naughtiest boy in the room, and the most spiritual boy in the room yeah. too. He was both. Yeah. Um. Uh, but he encouraged the Ruttles. I mean, he he was behind it. He showed me all sorts of footage. Oh, and, he did. Oh, yeah. yeah. He showed me a film called The Long and Winding Road, uh-huh. which they could never agree to release uh-huh. because they couldn't agree. Uh, which bits to cut mm-hmm. they hated some of them all hated at some bit or another uh-huh. especially at the end you yeah know, the let it be tapes so things. it was really about the, the so it never the coming apart of it the band got, yeah it was yeah. but it never got released so i my film was a sort of parody of a film that never got released and then they used all that material eventually when they did the 10 part anthology at the end of the 90s yeah and with your group, with your band, uh, you guys toured, you know, a few years ago. Um, and uh, was that? Do you? How are you still in touch with Mike? Yeah. And and you still and John and you are okay. Yeah, we yeah. went on the roads for three three tours. John yeah. and I, like two years ago, we yeah. had a wonderful time. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we didn't tour. We came. We did a final farewell show at the O2 in London yeah. in 2014. Yeah, and it was just in time because Jonesy was just losing his memory, and it was it was a final performance. We did ten shows at O2, eighteen thousand people a night, sold out. Yeah, and it was good fun. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, and we meet because we have a business. You know, we're business in common. We have to deal with business a bit. Oh, you do. Yeah. For so, but it's only like once a year we'll have to deal with it. But sort out some numbers. Well, it's like, what are we going to do? And everybody says, oh, I don't do anything. All right, well, let's do that then. <laughs> <laughs> Does, is it surprising to you that uh, that Michael took a, a sort of non-comedic route in, in a way? I think it's a sadness to me because he was really, uh, he was a comedian that got away. Yeah. And even now when he comes to visit me sometimes here, you'll look rather wistful. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because he's one of the funniest so performers. Funny. And yeah, he's yeah. such a funny writer. Yeah. Um. But you know he's got him made his life as this sort of national treasure. Yeah, uh, and he's you know he's famous. He'll be Sir Michael any minute. Oh yeah, I hope they give it him next year. Yeah. Are you Sir? You're Sir. No, not yet. Oh no, no. Why will he get it before you? Well, he's already a CBE. He's oh. worked his way up. Oh, he was okay. an OBE then CBE. You know you have to you have to be. <laughs> oh yeah. Where's the late in line? You have to be polite. Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. not polite. No. You, you, there's a line in of fact, progression. Yeah. Prince Charles asked me to be his jester one night in Scotland at Billy Connolly's because I was making him laugh. Yeah. And I said, why would I, why would I want a fucking awful job like that? Is that? Was that even a job anymore? I mean, well, I guess- No, of course it's not. But I mean, he laughed his ass off that I said, why would I want a fucking awful job like that? Yeah. Making you be your jester. Give me a break. It's so I mean, you, you always hear about that, that, that there, it was a job at one time. But it's an important job because if Trump had a jester, 
he'll be much healthier. I don't think he has a sense of humor, really. No, he doesn't. But the point is, the jesters are the ones that say the things you're not allowed to say. Exactly. They'll get yeah. your head cut off if you're an advisor. Right. But if you're a jester, yeah. and that's why it's so important oh, yeah. in Shakespeare, you see that the role of the jester is to tell Henry VIII. You go and tell him. Yeah. Oh, no, we'll get the jester to tell him. Yeah. Right, yeah, to, to, to tell uh, the truth to the fa- well, that's truth to power. What, that's what comedy is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, uh, Trump could not, ha- his ego could not handle a jester. So, you know, it's got to be on the, it's on the shoulders of Colbert <laughs> yeah, and well, uh, Marr. And that's on, true, uh, except Kimball he doesn't and, listen to them. Yeah, no. They're mocking Some him. Some of them get through. Baldwin got so. through. I think Sessions is his jester. Oh, boy. <laughs> Man. He looks like a jester, doesn't he? He does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're all evil, though. There's no... <laughs> it's just a bunch of evil clowns. Isn't it awful? I yeah, think America's going to win. See, I have this firm belief in America because America saved us in 1943 when mm. you all came over. Seems like he might let the Russians just take over Europe if they want right now, though. Well, that's what he wants, yeah. and that's what Putin wants. But I think America will win and throw him out. I think American institutions and Americans are true believers in freedom and liberty and will not put up with this. Yeah, I hope on you're... E- on either side of the aisle. Yeah. You know, all the FBI people. Oh, they're, yeah, I don't know. They're, they not, they're Republicans. It's not the people he accuses of getting are all. So yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what we're seeing. And I think you could see it in England, too, is that these politicians, you know, really most of them stand for nothing. But uh, but to, to proximity to power and, you know, honoring business interests. And it's it's sort of interesting how transparently craven this lot is. I think <laughs> I think the Russians have things on them. Because they All didn't. Of them? They, well, they didn't just tap the Democratic Party. Right. What that, would you do? The I, see, I agree with that. So I think Lindsey Graham. You can explain exactly. I agree with that. that they have things on all of them. I McConnell, think that's true. Lindsey Graham, uh, yeah, Paul I, I, Ryan. I, 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 I think they've got big, big, you know, things on them. And what 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 do you make of Brexit? I think it's the same thing. It was it was but the Russians were behind it. Uh, foul money came in and yeah. supported it. It's it's to disrupt Europe. Yeah. Which is what Putin's whole thing is. Destabilize. Destabilize. Maybe he can destabilize NATO at the same time. Right. So um uh, it was it was corrupt. Yeah. Have I you... wasn't allowed to vote, but it was it was a I think it's a it's a disaster. Why weren't you allowed to vote? Because I don't have a house in England. Oh, but you're still a citizen. I'm still a citizen. I can't vote in elections, I can't vote, I don't pay yeah. taxes, but anyway. Um, Has the feeling changed over there? Have you been there lately? Uh, well, don't forget, London was always very much remain. London's the city with the most to lose. The city's having to flee because you, you can't run business operations. It, we were winning that game. Yeah. It's a totally insane policy. Yeah. Oh, boy. We're, we're going to see what's going to happen. That's for sure. And... Uh, <laughs> So what's your... Are you Maybe. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> I'll be in my nursing home, you know. Pass <laughs> me my gin martini, would you? <laughs> you seem to have a pretty good uh, attitude about mortality. Yeah, well, that's from George. Yeah? Yeah, he was very, very strong. Remember, you're going to die. All this is going to go away. You yeah. can't... He was the most famous person group in the world. Yeah. And they he realized that it, it was all going to go away. Yeah. And that's why, you know, his influence was both interesting and spiritual i mean he, he brought the whole indian thing into the 60s sure single-handedly yeah that's a guitarist from yeah. liverpool and were you there like at the end 
Of his death? Yeah. Yeah, just after. I mean, I, I've been just, I was visiting him during when he was the sick. whole time. And, yeah. and wh- how, was his, uh, his, how was his disposition about it? Was he still fairly... Very comfortable. Really? Yes. He felt that he was going to be escape the pain of being rebirth, mm. of rebirth. Mm-hmm. And so he was very comfortable with the whole process of dying. And there were a lot of you know, Indian things there, music. And, uh-huh. and so I'm going... Oh, I don't mind being reborn. <laughs> I'll put my name down for that one, would you? <laughs> so it was the only thing we ever disagreed on. Uh-huh. He accepted the fact that I didn't believe in anything. Uh-huh. And he, you know, he had been a Catholic and then he was a Hindu. You yeah. Know? So, but he was always very generous spiritually. Yeah. Know? And that religion laughs at things a lot. You sure. Know? Like the yeah. Dalai Lama laughs all the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very um, kind of... Uh, the kind of uh, nothing. I, I don't. I, I don't quite understand it, but it seems to be the most reasonable uh, spiritual practice in terms of acceptance. Realizing we're funny. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's the best thing. Outside of ourselves, we're just funny. Yeah. It may be tragic to us, but it's funny to other people. It, it, it's, that's true. Yeah. 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 And, and you have to have a sense of humor. We'd all be so depressed, we won't want to live. It's a very. I think it's a very useful, yeah, um, yeah. positive thing. Yeah, it, 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 it when there's when there's very little hope, uh, at least there's relief. But at least there's no war. People go, "Oh, no, I was very little hope." Look around; they've got you know fifty-two channels of television and fifty-two, what nine hundred? Yeah, exactly. On my but, phone, I can't. yeah, exactly. But the point is, nobody's bombing you yet, right? And that you know that's the important thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yet in that, and I, I hope it stays that way. It was uh, great talking to you, man. You too. Thanks. Thank you. How was that? That was great. That was I. I'm so glad I got to talk to to Eric Idle and to John Cleese. It was, you know, I I'm I'm living a life, people, and it's it's pretty pretty fucking amazing. Even with sweaty Mark running around the streets of Lower Manhattan, he can stay there. He can stay there for eternity. But uh, Mark right now is living an amazing life, and I'm grateful for that. Don't forget to grab a paperback copy of Waiting for the Punch wherever you get books or at markmarinbook.com, and uh, I'll let you know what happens on set if I can, within reason, within the limitations of what I'm allowed to talk about. Okay? Okay. Boomer lives! <laughs>